Should a CGI actor be nominated for Best Actor? We're going to talk about that because Andy Serkis. What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. I'm Know-It-All, Jake. I'm Fanboy. Paul. Paul. That's right. <laughs> we also like awkward pauses here. <laughs> that wasn't too much of an awkward pause. It was just sort of a... No, it was a pregnant pause, maybe? Yeah, that that was an awkward pause. That just, that just happened. That so. just happened, people. It just happened. Um, all right, guys. Today, we've got a couple of interesting things here. We've got this film called War for the Planet of the Apes that we're going to dive into. Uh, no spoilers. We're not going to tell you no spoilers. how it ends. Wow. No spoilers. Okay. No, did you want to get into spoilers, Paul? Uh, you know what? I we'll, feel like we can talk about this without I spoilers. I think we can talk about it. There's going to yeah. be some, some interesting... We'll, we'll, probably no spoilers. No probably spoilers. no spoilers. Paul... There's no spoilers here, people. I'm gonna I'm gonna smack Paul and then edit him out if he drops any spoilers because they all turn talk into about fish. This movie. No, yeah, they de-evolve. That's right. Um, we're also gonna be ranking our top five animal movies because, guys, War for the Planet of the Apes is an animal movie. Can you believe it? <laughs> they, can, I mean, it's hard for me to believe. You're watching this movie yeah. and you're like, I get that they're animals, but they're so human. Well, yeah, this is going to be part of our discussion, yeah. but it's amazing how much they make you root against the humans there. I mean, right. they do a brilliant job of that. So. It's a very depressing movie in that regard. Uh, but it made us think, what are the top animal movies of all time? And so we've brought our list, and I'm kind of thinking Paul and I are going to be – as usual, at odds over more than a few of these. Yeah, I think so. And Paul so. will probably call me out for cheating on at least one. <laughs> yeah, because you cheat every single list. What I call a difference of opinion, Paul calls cheating. So you guys be the judge of that. <laughs> so without further ado, let's start ranking some geeky stuff. Welcome inside Rank Geeks, the place where smelly nerds talk about super geeky stuff. You know, I didn't think I smelled that bad. I'm, I apologize to Paul is always offended that I call him a smelly nerd. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm a little sensitive about that. So. But uh, Paul, since I offended you here, why don't you kick us off by telling me All what right. is number five on your list of top five animal movies ever. And tell me how you defined what an animal yeah movie no was. this is this is going to be really crucial actually and and just to go on with the the whole offending thing i i went with the most offensive animals i could i could come up with this is really not just the top, top five most offensive animal movies yeah like, but the animals themselves were offensive right exactly this is okay. not like a bad plugged in offensive type of things <laughs> these are just offensive animals and I, I really defined it because you know the war for the planet of the apes it, it, the apes are are at war with humanity right so i thought okay we need to have some more violent animals here interesting animals that are going to war with humanity okay you took a very unique take to this yeah yeah so number five on my list jurassic park jurassic park 
Those are uh, incredibly violent. Those are very, animals. but are they very animals? offensive? Are they oh, animals yeah. or are they reptiles? Well, they're not mammals, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm, but... I'm splitting hairs. No <laughs> they're technically, you know, actually, this is perfect because, like, War for the Planet of the Apes, it was all sort of this human-like intervention that created these terrible, mean—well, not mean really smart apes that that eventually destroyed our entire civilization and the same thing happened in Jurassic Park did they destroy our entire civilization maybe maybe not maybe there was somebody else that did but we'll get to that later anyway Jurassic Park is a classic um what's your favorite scene from that movie Oh, it's got to be the uh, T-Rex scene where they're chasing the vehicle. I love that scene. Oh, and, oh, see, now I just want to watch it. Let's just stop the podcast and actually just watch Jurassic Park. The scene in the kitchen where the velociraptors are chasing after the kids. Yeah. And they see the kids in the, in the like, the reflection. Right. And so totally cool. You want to know my favorite scene from Jurassic Park? Yes. Where Newman gets eaten. so satisfying as as somebody who's a fan of Seinfeld as a show and who thoroughly loathes the character of Newman you know that was was so nice to see him get it no it was a super creepy scene actually I mean the whole movie it had some some suspenseful parts that scene totally creeped me out that dinosaur with the little flappy thingies or however it rattles I can't do it that was a terrible impression (laughs) all right Number five for me is actually also a creepy movie. That's hard for me to say. It was hard for me to put it on this list, but it was actually impactful on me, so I had to put it on here. And it's Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Oh! (laughs) Which, you know, if you go back and watch it, of course some of the special effects don't hold up where she's being attacked in the attic and you can see that they've tied birds on her so it looks like (laughs) it's this frenzy of chaos, even though there's like bird corpses tied to her or whatever (laughs) it is. Maybe they're bird fake fake birds, whatever. I like to think it was what, the 1950s, 60s? Oh, they could still use yeah, bird corpses then, right? or something like that. <laughs> um, but this movie, as ridiculous as the premise seems, like all the birds going crazy, it's so ominous. Alfred Hitchcock with this movie, I, go, I went in knowing this is an old movie, it's a ridiculous premise. I have found myself, years on, still getting a little nervous when I see a flock of birds start to congregate. Because of that movie. He is so good at building the tension. I totally agree. I totally agree. That's all I'm going to say about it. All right. Number four. Number four. King Kong. Which one? (laughs) You know, (laughs) I knew you were going to ask me. And I I have to say, Peter Jackson had, you know, the Peter Jackson version was kind of interesting. and, And we could talk a little bit more about that with your whole Andy Serkis thing. But for me, I'm... I like the original. Okay. I think that the original was pretty great. Um, the, Why was it better? It was the first, you know. The, and here's the thing. I hate that answer. I Tell know. me more. Why was it better? I know. So, so here's the thing. This was, when you look back at the 1930s, and this thing was made in 1932 or something like that, um, all those monster movies, you know, Frankenstein, Dracula, all those, they were based on books, right? King Kong is one of the very first huge, literally huge creations of the movie industry. This was an entirely new story, and in some ways it completely set the template for this sort of um, CGI spectacle B-type movies that, that dominate movie them today. Okay. This was a huge deal, and... 
it, it actually speaks to how good the original movie was that when it was remade in 1976, when it, when Peter Jackson remade it, a lot of those elements are still right in there. You've got the big old gates where Kong has to come through. You've got climbing up the buildings. You've got these women that he holds and he, you know, sort of likes. You know, it's it's all these really interesting elements that have stuck with the story from the 1930s on. And because of that, even though, of course, it doesn't have the, the special effects that, you know, Peter Jackson's versions does, it still, I think it still holds up pretty well. Although it is kind of racist when you look at it. <laughs> Wasn't everything Hollywood did back in the day yeah. somewhat racist? <laughs> it really was. It really was. Mickey Rooney as oh. Asian... Asian landlord and yeah. some Catherine Hepburn no. movie. <laughs> Audrey Hepburn. Audrey, sorry, Catherine Hepburn. Sorry, I was thinking. You know, I almost no. put I almost put Roar on my list. Oh which yeah, yeah, I yeah. Brought up on a past podcast, yeah. and that's what got me thinking about Catherine Hepburn. All right, number four for me is Mouse Hunt. <laughs> this should be on your list, Paul. Oh, I don't even. I don't. Have you even seen know Mouse Hunt? No, no. Okay, it's got Nathan Lane in it and Lee Evans, who's a British comedian. Um, and they play these two brothers that are kind of down on their luck, but they find themselves uh, the inheritance of their father's string factory, <laughs> which is decrepit and is worth nothing. And also this decrepit old house out in the country. And they're, this is not really helping. Their dad's dead. They didn't like him anyways, but it's still sad that he's gone. They don't really like each other. There's some conflict there. And they're trying to figure out what to do. Your typical they, British comedy, really. Well, I, I don't. No one likes each other. It's not really a British comedy. I'm just saying Lee Evans was British. Oh, okay. Well, Sorry. so is Nathan Lane. No, Nathan Lane isn't. Sorry. Right. So there you go. Scratch that. Um, and but they just they happen to come across the blueprints for this old house as they're checking it out and discover that it's the missing Larue, this this like eccentric visionary genius architect had done six houses in his lifetime this is one of them Every, nobody knew where it was they they find out it's theirs and so they're like we're going to fix this up and sell it we're going to make money we're going to be rich and as they do they discover that there's this mouse that's been living there and they try to go about exterminating it so it kind of turns into this home alone like movie <laughs> of these two guys trying to like <laughs> take out this mouse and it keeps going horribly horribly wrong and Christopher Walken makes a cameo oh, well, as this crazy right bug there. exterminator and it's just hilarious it's all this you know uh, um, very physical humor you know slapstick humor and it's a, really a funny movie and pretty pretty wholesome overall there's a couple of things you gotta watch out for but it's rated pg and this was a childhood favorite of mine and it i've watched it with my kids and it's still funny oh so there you man, go i may have to see that. number four that for me mouse hunt all right number three this is a movie i doubt that you've seen but we'll try it the edge the edge the edge stars anthony hopkins and alec baldwin and features a man-eating grizzly bear who's chasing them through the forests of Alaska. Oh, I've heard about this one. Because is, don't they have like a – one of them is sleeping with the other dude's wife or something? That's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right. This is this is an R-rated movie. I think it's the only R-rated movie I have on my list. I saw it when I was 19 or something. It was super great. This was right after 
after Anthony Hopkins had done his whole Silence of the Lambs thing, so he was a big deal. Yeah. And he's still a big deal. He's in prime Anthony Hopkins form, and so they're just trying to get away. They're trying to survive in the wild, and they're running away from this vicious bear that wants to eat them. So it's it's kind of a great story, actually. You know, And so you have these, these two people who have a lot of tension with each other because, of course, one of them is sleeping with the other guy's wife. They sort of learn. So he that kind of wants them to be eaten. <laughs> See, that's the thing, and Anthony Hopkins proves to be quite moral because he tries to save Alec Baldwin, even though Alec Baldwin is cheating on you know. What a guy! What a guy! That Tony Hops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's it's worth seeing, although it's very R-rated with lots of content language. caveat yeah. with Polish. That may be the only one we do this this episode. All right, number three for me is on the opposite end of the spectrum. Paul went with his R-rated. Sex bear, con- sex like bear. sex bear violent film. <laughs> that's, that's the appropriate way to describe it, right? In a nutshell. <laughs> that's right. The sex bear violent film. Uh, for me, number three on my list is Because of Win Dixie. Oh, okay. Yeah, those, those are sort of polar opposites. Very different. About a young girl who's like kind of coming of age in a small town in the south. And this crazy mangy dog comes into her life and her dad's life. Her dad's called the preacher. And and it's just kind of a slice of life as this dog kind of infects every little corner of it. But the dog is both central and secondary to this story. And it's a very poignant story. And this one's a shout out to my dad who loves Because of Winn-Dixie, both the novel and the movie. And you have like my dad's favorite quote of all time is you can't have a party without pickles. And that comes from because of Win Dixie. Dave Matthews plays this, you know, this great character in the movie. You didn't know Dave Matthews had acting chops, but he's really fantastic in Because of Win Dixie. And and it just explores like the nature of community and and brokenness, but in a very sweet and optimistic way. And it wrestles with grief and loss and love and family. And pickles. And pickles. Because of Win Dixie, guys. Good movie. It's got um uh, Jeff Daniels in the movie, as well as Dave Matthews, and a couple and it other is G rated, right? Uh, I'm trying to remember if it's G rated or if there's a couple of curse words that give it a PG. That's a good. That's uh, yeah, it, but it's yeah. there. I mean, it, like it's at worst, there's a, maybe a couple of uh, you know D words or H words dropped in there, but it's a very family friendly movie. Can't have a party without pickles. You can't have a party without pickles. All right, I'm going to remember that. All right. Okay. Number two. Number two. This will come as no surprise given my whole, you know, animals that want to kill and eat you. Cujo. Number two, Jaws. 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 I have never seen Jaws. You're kidding me. Nope, never seen it. So it's about this giant shark, right? <laughs> oh, is that what it is? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's it's a really compelling movie. This was one of this was Steven Spielberg's first huge, huge hit. It really kind of I mean, it's a classic. Block. Yeah, it's a blockbuster. Even outside of the, the animal genre. Yeah, and it's a and and I tell you what, one of the most riveting scenes in it though, actually has nothing to do with the shark at all. It's just these people sitting around, they're drinking. And then the captain of the boat, Captain Quint, I think is his name. Yeah. He starts talking about his experience as as an old World War II vet and how he um, was in this USS Indianapolis accident, which is really famous. Um, the boat sank, and apparently like half of the survivors were eaten by sharks. Oh and so he describes it 
he and it's just so riveting and terrible and sad and horrifying. It's my favorite scene in the movie. But, <laughs> yeah, you got to yeah, see. That it. sounds like is that is that where like the famous quote about like shark's eyes are like a doll's eyes. Something like that. Oh, so, like my yeah, only, yeah, 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 yeah. It is, it is in that <laughs> scene, and I think it's, I think it's more. If I can remember it right, it's, it's like they're not like dogs' eyes. They're oh, just, okay. they're cold and lifeless. And, yeah, I'm not surprised I got it wrong because my only context for that scene is from um, a terrible but kind of funny because it's a terrible movie called Master of Disguise <laughs> with Dana Carvey. <laughs> where he's just like it's super racist because he plays this like very stereotypical Italian uh, character who becomes – who can – who finds out his superpower essentially is being very good at terrible disguises. And so there's one scene where he's like trying to hide. And that he, like, was my life ambition when I was like 11. <laughs> and so he, like he – there's this one scene where he's being chased and then all of a sudden like he transforms himself into this old grizzled man on a boat. And they're like asking if he saw, and then he starts to make some comment about like a dog's eyes. Anyways, and somebody told me that was referencing yeah. Jaws. So yeah. there you go. All right, number two for me is Best in Show. Oh, that's a movie I want to see. Oh my goodness, Christopher Guest, his mockumentaries are just the tops, pretty much all the time. Yeah. Now is he the same guy who did Spinal Tap and the whole bit? He actually did. He uh, helped write Spinal Tap, but Got he didn't it. direct Spinal Tap. Um, but he did Best in Show, A Mighty Wind, Waiting for Guffman, the new one called Mascots, and I feel like I'm forgetting one more. But he's he's just famous for these absolutely ridiculous deadpan mockumentaries. And Best in Show is a really good is a really good one. Yeah, and it chronicles all these quirky people who are competing in dog shows, and so you just what Christopher Guest does so well, and what people may not what, what people may know Christopher Guest for beyond his mockumentaries is he actually wrote uh, the Princess Bride, like he was one of the writers for the Princess Bride, and he played the six fingered man. No way! In the Bride. Isn't that interesting? You and are you are a know it all, know it all guys. Yeah, he's also uh, married to Jamie Lee Curtis. There you go. Wow. Now you know that too. That's very interesting. But his mockumentaries, like the writing is so good and the, and the actors that he gets to play these ridiculous characters, you can, I just imagine that they had to be busting up laughing at the crazy things that they would say and sometimes the normal things that they would say and make them sound crazy. So like in Best of Show, you have Parker Posey describing how she met her husband and it's all this – so such a mundane story about meeting at Starbucks and yet somehow – they managed to make it just laugh out loud ridiculous. So best in show yeah. is number two for me. That's that's one that I've always wanted to see because my wife and I, if I tell you what, if the Westminster Dog show is on, yeah. we will watch it. We oh, you've got to watch best yeah. in show. Oh, yeah, I, we got to see that. Yeah. All right, number one. Number one. Animals that kill and eat you. <laughs> the birds. The birds was your number one. All number right. One. I can, it, you know what? Props. It, that's creepy. No, it, it totally Based is. Based on how you did your list, that makes sense. Yeah, no. It, if you haven't seen it, actually, I think that Jake undersold it at the very beginning <laughs> because I think, honestly, I'm a big Alfred Hitchcock fan. I have a lot of appreciation for a lot of his movies. The Birds, I think, is the scariest movie that he has ever done. Mm. They have so many creepy scenes here. 
the birds come and attack you and no it doesn't make any sense at all it was actually based on a, on a french 19th century novel i think i didn't know that yeah so um but these birds just become the creepiest things you've ever seen and i think for me so menacing so menacing and i think my favorite scene in the movie is is the scene outside the schoolhouse and you mm. know the one that i'm talking yep. about where um the main uh heroine is essentially waiting for the kids to get out of school so she can walk them down into safety on all this stuff. And she's listening to the kids sing inside the schoolhouse, and these crows, they just Ugh. start landing on this on this uh, this jungle gym. Yep. And just one at a time, and then all of a sudden she turns around, and it's covered with hundreds of these crows. And it is still, to this day... If I'm walking around and I see a whole bunch of crows, I think it's the birds. I gotta get inside. It's happening. <laughs> it's That's for a great real, movie. though. Yeah. It, yeah, it's it is that might I would I could concede that point that it it was more menacing and impactful on me than Psycho was, which is his oh, other yeah. classic, more of a horror thriller that's supposed to leave you freaked out. Which it was creepy. It yeah, was Psycho creepy. Was creepy, but the birds was much more impactful on me, and I think that's probably the measure of a better yeah. movie. Yeah, um, we got to do an sense. Alfred Hitchcock episode. I we, think. Yeah, he's got enough for us. All right, number one for me, guys, Ratatouille. <laughs> Instead of animals that kill and eat you, animals that kill and that cook food. for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're like, hey, I'm not going to eat you. I'm actually going to make food for you. Yeah. Like that is like the exact opposite of it. Yeah. And in such an amazing way. Yeah. I actually think it's one of Pixar's more underrated movies. I would agree with that. As I say it. Like I – um, you know, what's it? Patton Oswalt does a really good job. I mean a lot of people know him as a foul-mouthed stand-up comic or as the pudgy uh, picked on Spencer from King of Queens. But his role as this like food-loving rat is so charming. It's like, charming. Like you really enjoy him. And yeah. it's a movie about a rat who makes food. Most people hate rats. In real life, I hate rats. And yet yeah. – I dig this rat, Remy, who he, – he loves food the way I do. Yeah. And he thinks so creatively about the way you combine flavors and the way Pixar visualized that and and really made this story a connection between him and, and this down-on-his-luck chef and touching the heart of a hardened food critic. I mean there's just so much to like about this movie, but I think it gets overlooked for well, some yeah. of their flashier I mean, stuff like The Incredibles or – the emotion of Up or Toy which is, Story movies, yeah. which are all great movies. They're all great movies, and I do think the the thing that that I had a problem with Ratatouille was it was a very very nice movie, but every ten minutes or so, I would think I would not want to eat in that restaurant. There's all that rat hair in the food, and you couldn't suspend that part of your disbelief. Yeah, I just yeah. it was it was a hard for, movie for me to digest. Yeah, the rats really got to be more of a metaphor for you to enjoy it. You know, <laughs> yeah. it can't yeah, be very, was, you can't take it realistically. Thinking. I was just thinking. It just it, I just had trouble with it. But, but it was still a great movie, right? Yeah, that's what I mean. Like that, movie. it wasn't totally written off by everybody because it's a rat messing with your food. You know that. We didn't all freak out and just boycott it because it's gross. We actually watched it and we're yeah. like, maybe I wouldn't eat there, but that rat's got to go. Yeah. On. All right. So after I watched Jurassic Park for the umpteenth time, I'm going to pop in Ratatouille. 
No, you got to do best in show before. Oh yeah, 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 best yeah, in yeah. show. You got to go to that one yeah, first. Yeah. You know, I think our lists are just so divergent. We approach these totally different, so we're not going to come to a definitive top five here. Other than birds are number one, except that birds was on both lists, yeah. and so that speaks to its truly genre defined character. <laughs> So there you have it, the definitive fanboy know-it-all top 10 animal movies, uh, as defined by animals that kill people and animals that are just in great movies. Yeah, you have a much more optimistic list than I do. And that brings us to a very pessimistic note, (laughs) War for the Planet of the Apes. War for the Planet of the Apes was a, it's being considered one of the one of the summer's top movies. It is, has something like a ninety eight percent rating on Rotten Tomato. It deals with some very heavy duty subjects. It has some fantastic computer animation. I mean that's that's probably the thing, Jake, that that struck me the most about this movie when I reviewed it is the CGI on it is astounding. Yeah, because you never think about it. Right, right. You never have to sit there and think, that was CGI. Exactly. You're just sitting there watching it like, this is a great movie. Yeah, yeah. These these apes look so real and so, in their own way, human that it makes for a really compelling movie. For those who, who aren't aware, this is this is a part that's going to take us into – the planet of the apes is essentially Earth, Right. And the apes. Whoa! You just spoiled the Charlton Heston original. <laughs> I know the nineteen sixty eight <laughs> version is now totally spoiled. I'm so sorry, but so all these intelligent apes. There's this this uh, this virus that was created by by humanity to essentially cure Alzheimer's. Hmm. Um, it doesn't quite. Goal. Yeah, it was a very nice goal, but what it ends up doing is it exterminates most of the human race Whoops. while. <laughs> simultaneously making the apes very, very smart. And so... It's a very uh, one-sided deal here, guys. It really is. So, How so, did Alzheimer's research go so bad? <laughs> it's, it's a bad was, was Was the person working on the cure? He was did working on the Alzheimer's? cure. His father had Alzheimer's uh, okay. is what happened. And so they they imbued this this ape called Bright Eyes with, with this drug and found that it made her very much smarter. And then Bright Eyes gave birth to Caesar who is the main ape that we have seen in all of these movies. Yeah, because War for the Planet of the Apes is the third in the modern trilogy. And where we leave it, where we have it in in War for the Planet of the Apes, most of civilization, human civilization, is gone. Um, The apes have gone off into the forest, and the humans, at least some humans, are wanting to take back the world. So you actually do have a very large conflict going on between the surviving band of humans and these apes that are just trying to get along. They're yeah, trying to live their lives. Yeah, because some of the humans lives. proved immune to the exactly. virus. They, they proved to be immune to the virus. But there is sort of a revelation that happens. The, the virus also has another symptom. Yeah. And so these, these humans are trying to say, no, right. I know that this is looking bad for us, but we're survivors. Yeah. And we're going to kill these darn dirty apes. <laughs> nice editing there nice censoring yeah and and so the the main humans that we see here they're sort of the splinter group of the rest of humanity 
and they have their it's really interesting for me as kind of a Christian movie reviewer because they have a very religious understanding of their purpose in life and they really believe that that they're on a religious crusade essentially to exterminate these smart apes because the world is the dominion of man and they need to be the ones who control it they they call you know they have the symbols for alpha and omega everywhere that was striking for me yeah, yeah the the colonel has a cross wears a cross he he categorizes it as a holy war um which I, it's pretty interesting to me so in in they are not the good guys in this right the apes are definitely the good guys and the colonel and all of his religious minions are definitely the bad guys in this yeah and i and you know what for me that right there is the crux of when my wife asked me about this movie the first word that came out of my mouth was depressing (laughs) (laughs) it was such a depressing movie and and it for me i think a large part of it as i think about it was because the protagonists are these apes and the antagonists are the human beings and i'm looking at it thinking you know what I'm with the human being, so I'm being asked to root against myself. Not only am I just a human in general, <laughs> but if I was faced with the same situation where it's – I'm thinking, all right, if there's – this earth was created for mankind and sure, maybe there's people that disagree with me on that. But – and I want this to – I want to further the human race and my kind. I think that's a pretty natural instinct and all of the humans are being wiped out and the apes are rising and – We've got to do something about this so we can preserve our own species. I think whether you're a Christian or an atheist, the survival of the fittest, that that instinct kicks in. Um, whether, whether you want to call it survival of the fittest or dominion over the earth, you know, Christian atheist terms. So here I am watching this movie and I'm being told by watching the movie that I need to root for these apes. and I need to be really sad about them being slaughtered. So I'm feeling really sad about them when they die. And yet I'm also feeling really sad about the fact that the human race is about to go extinct. <laughs> so so you really Depressing. had – You had really conflicted emotions, right? So, I did. So did the, the movie work on you as it was intended where you're rooting for the apes? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The, the humans that you see, I can't root for. Right. You know? And so I think that's what makes it such a hard movie for me is that uh, – instinctually I would want to root for the humans in this story except that as the movie as the storytelling goes in the movie I cannot root for these humans because they're awful and they treat the apes terrible and they slaughter them and they torture them and they abuse them and they enslave them and so it's like I don't want to be one of you. Even if I recognize that I probably would be one of you, I don't want to be one of you because I like the apes better. Yeah. And so it really felt like I couldn't feel good either way yeah either way i'm rooting for the extinction of my own people because i'm rooting for the apes because they're so nice and they're so human-like or i'm rooting against the guys that are literally torturing and murdering and enslaving the apes yeah exactly it's a no-win well and that's one of the weird things about this series is that i mean and if you know the original charlton heston movie yep you know yeah you see that this this is just a really depressing series. Yeah. I mean, because it all goes into some very bad, very dark places. Um, it's it's a really thought-provoking movie, and it's a really well-done movie. But at the same time, it does lead you somewhere that you don't necessarily want to go, even, right. if you, even if you're rooting for the apes wholeheartedly. 
You know, you know that things are going to take a downward turn when Charlton Heston shows up. Right. Which is like the best moment of that first yeah. original movie yeah. where where he comes onto the beach and finds this artifact of the and realizes where he's at and just ah oh, the the anguish in yeah. his voice was just incredible. Like yeah. that's the scene that sticks with me. Oh yeah. And so of course this series is the prequel. Right. To right. the original, you know, that came out in the sixty-eight. Yeah, movie. it's like, how did this world get to the place where Charlton Heston would come back to it? Yeah, and so of course you know it's not a spoiler for you coming into the series of essentially where the story is going to land in yeah. the end. Yeah, because you know it's not going to end well for a certain species. Yeah, no, and the well, title alone tells you what species is not going to end well for. Well, and the thing about the original series is that. It doesn't go well for the apes either. I mean, they sort of fall into the same sort of traps that the humans do. Now, whether this new series follows that is perhaps an open question. But in some ways, when I look at it, it's it's interesting to me because it sort of talks a little bit about the inherent sinful nature mm. of man and apes, you know, in a, in a sense, it, within this context, within this fictional context, it really talks about how how easy it is for us to get waylaid by, um, even when we start off with the purest of motives, those motives can uh, degenerate and degenerate quickly. Yeah. And I find that pretty interesting. Yeah, because even though we're discussing in this outlandish, in a sense, uh, sci-fi construct of apes becoming intelligent and taking over the world accidentally and on purpose... How many times have we seen that story play out in the course of human history Yeah, with whether it was different religious convictions or different nationalities or ethnicities or whatever it is that have gone from noble intentions rising up against poor treatment, to, to put it mildly, yeah. to say we're going to do this better and then devolve into exactly the same type of garbage or yeah. pretty close to it, parallels of it themselves that's that's human history on repeat yeah well and it makes me think actually of the magician's apprentice is that the first book in the narnia series oh uh the magician's nephew the magician's nephew yeah Yeah, because you have that same sort of scene where you have um the diggory and polly is that their names i think so yeah they go into the past they jump into this lake and they go into this faraway world where they go um I think it's Charn is the world. Yep. And um, they go through this big old gallery where they have these statues of all these former leaders. And they start off wise and beautiful and just looking. And as they go on, they become sadder and they become crueler. And it is sort of an interesting thing how how it just seems to be, as you say, it's sort of history on repeat where where – Sometimes you need to be refreshed, I think, before you can you can really reach your potential, and then you have to be refreshed again. Yeah. So, and and the other thing that I found really interesting about this movie, or at least the thing that I found myself thinking about, was the idea that in the movie it seemed to me that God had actually turned his back on humanity and put his hand on these apes is what it felt like to me. Hmm. Um, Where you have, there's a scene in there where there's almost like an act of God that clearly helps the apes. Right. You know? Um, And so you have 
I just was sort of thinking as time was going on, you do have instances in the Bible where God will reject his people or certain members of his people and bestow his blessing on others. And it made me sort of wonder whether that was one of the things that this movie was suggesting. Interesting. That we had lost our God-given protection because we had betrayed the values that we were supposed to hold dear. We became animalistic while the apes became more humane. And I think that that was sort of an interesting an interesting little side note for me as I was watching it. Yeah, and I think that that might be implicit there. I think it, it's very subtle. I, I, I didn't, I didn't, that didn't come to me until I can see what you're saying, but that, that was not what struck me in particular, but it is an interesting thought. Um, and, and it is interesting for us to think about as Christians, because often we kind of get into our high minded sense of, we have this extra special status that we are owed and when it comes to a mindset that we're owed something versus we are gifted with something, it does change how we interact with other people. And and that is the sense, again, not explicitly but implicitly, that you get from these humans, that they are owed this authoritative this authoritarian grip of the whole earth, and that that's why they that's what justifies that uh, dominion and slaughter of the apes is that they they are owed this this is how it's always been or how it's been for as long as we have been around as human beings like we have just conquered 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 so this is ours to have versus under and that led us to do terrible things and kind of destroy the earth and do all this other stuff and because we lost sight of the fact that it's a gift. So, I, I mean, I, I buy that. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I think made this movie so compelling was Andy Serkis's performance. Oh, absolutely. It was that combined with CGI, the way he was able to make Caesar, the head chimp, sort of come alive and really have, have a lot of emotion. I mean, he is getting a certain level of Oscar buzz. People are asking, should he be nominated for an Oscar? Should he not be nominated for an Oscar? It's totally, it is totally a new realm for us to sort of enter into. Right. What do you think about that? Yeah. Now, this this actually came to my mind. And, and actually, I've only seen this one out of the trilo- out of the new trilogy. And so as I was sitting there watching this movie and seeing his performance and being moved by it, I was sitting there thinking afterwards he has he has to get nominated for for actor for this because we know that Andy Serkis over the years whether it's been Gollum or King Kong or Caesar or whatever other role he's played he does such a good job at something that is very difficult for other actors I mean you you'll hear stories of Ian McSir Ian McKellen you know, supposedly being reduced to near tears, having to act against the green screen. And yet Andy Serkis has done this day in and day out for well over a decade now and and does it so well that they have to motion. They had to start motion captioning his face because the performance he was putting in was so compelling that they had to translate that onto his character's faces. Yeah. And so I absolutely believe that he deserves to be up for a best actor nomination for this. Yeah. Yeah, I have some I have some hesitation with that. I don't I don't necessarily disagree with you, but it's so new and so different and and the skills are are I think 
I mean, I have no idea. I've I've only acted in a couple of things, and I've certainly never done any <laughs> CGI acting, so I can't say this. But it seems like the skills involved are just so different, and you are given, it seems like, a little bit of a head start because the CGI is so good, and it immediately takes you into a different character, inherently into a different character. So I would have some questions about whether it would be be the equal of, say, a Daniel Day-Lewis performance in, in Lincoln or whatever. But at the same time, to get to your point, I mean, makeup sort of does the same thing, right? Would Daniel Day-Lewis yeah. have been effective as effective if, if he didn't look so much like Lincoln, right. if the makeup wasn't as good? Meryl Streep and the Iron Lady, she looked a lot like Margaret Thatcher, and that was a big part of, of the character. So... It's really interesting in this new era, like, where do you draw the line between special effects and acting? And I think that that line's just going to get blurrier over time. Yeah, it is. Because, uh, you know, to your point, would Brad Pitt, you know, as your the favorite. curious Kate, my favorite, who I argue is up in, should be Which the you best wrong. actor of all time. Like, look at his resume, people. Oh. Anyways, but then you look at the curious case of Benjamin Button heavy CGI because they had to take Brad Pitt's performance and span it yeah. over a lifetime of and like bring some life to, to it anyway 80. because he's such a terrible actor. <laughs> and and so of course, you know, when he's a shriveled old 80-year-old 8-year-old <laughs> like that's not Brad Pitt. You know, it may be his performance through his voice and through his face, but there are heavy modifications on that. And yet it's a very compelling movie and a compelling performance. And I'm pretty sure he got a nomination for that. You know, that's or a they good at least, question. They at least got, you know, a, for the CG they did. Yeah, maybe out of pity he might have gotten one. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, so, but it is a good question because at some point, you know, we have to reorient our minds and stop arguing over... Should it be this? Should it be that? And say, are we comparing apples and oranges? And is it different categories? Well, and the other – this is a question that I've actually had for you know, several months now is, is because a lot of the movies that we see now are so heavily animated. They have such a high level of CGI. Is there a point where it's sort of that translates into where we have to consider them almost animated movies? Right. Well, yeah, because, you know, uh, as I was looking at my top five animal list, I had the question in my mind, does it have to be real animals or can it be cartoons? But then I realized how many of these movies like War for the Planet of the Apes, like the new Jungle Book, the new Jungle Book movie is like 98 percent CGI. Everything you see in there, except for the boy and maybe a few props are all computer generated. And that's a fantastic looking CGI movie itself. Yeah. And so, yeah, that, but it's an animated movie, but it's so photorealistic, it doesn't feel like an animated movie. Right. It seems like we have, if you actually define it, it's sort of like whether a tomato is a fruit or a vegetable, right? right. I mean, we know that it's defined one way, but we, we all know that it's a vegetable. I yeah. mean, we just have grown up that way, and so that's the, what we think, even though technically it's a fruit. It seems like a lot of these movies are technically animated movies, really, but we don't classify them as such because they don't feel that way. Yeah. And and to bring some in- intrigue to this question, Brad Pitt did get nominated mm. for Best Actor for The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. And so I think that's got to – we've got to factor that in here because functionally, what was the big difference between what he and Andy Serkis have done? 
in this in War of the Further Planet of the Apes, where okay, maybe functionally the difference is some of Benjamin Button you get the actual Brad Pitt. There's parts of Benjamin Button where the age matches up with the actor, and so there's the actual Brad Pitt. But the majority of that movie is a CGI Brad Pitt, hmm. like or heavily CGI made up or actual practical makeup or whatever they decide to do. You know, it's not it's yeah. not Brad Pitt as Brad Pitt. You know. Yeah. No, I totally hear that, and and you make a compelling point. For me, I still just can't see sliding Andy Circus into the into the best actor category, but I think he should get some sort of Oscar for it anyway. You but know, what because is, what, he does, no what he does, what he does is there's he. No, uh, yeah, I mean, there's no category. Category. For him. Yeah. And he would be he would be alone in that category if there was. But it does seem. I mean, he really is. What he is doing is almost more important than an Oscar in that he's really doing something revolutionary. Yeah. He's bringing a new form of of movie magic into the mainstream and has done it in, in an amazing way. Yeah. And so for that, he should be lauded, just not given a Best Actor Oscar. Yeah, and so I, I think this will be curious to see how they go about it. Knowing Hollywood, I think they'll probably, as this becomes more pervasive, create a new category rather than try to redefine the old category. But I think there will be some pushback against that, as there always is. As we talk about with animated movies, that sure, there's a Best Animated Movie category, but there's animated movies out there that could contend for Best Overall Picture. Ever you know, in the last couple of years. And so I think that I don't think the debate's gonna go away, you know, because I think even if they create a category for best CGI performance, there's still gonna be people that say his CGI performance as Caesar was just as good as X's performance as a live action character. Yeah, you know what's gonna change it? Huh. When Meryl Streep gets into the CGI game. Then <laughs> that's going to be it. Yeah. Then it'll be nominated for best actress. For yeah. Sure. And I think Andy Serkis is just probably too modest in that he's not out there pushing, pushing the envelope saying, when, where's my best picture nomination? Or if he is, I haven't heard it. You know, he seems like he's a kind of heads down guy. Well, he that's had, at least yeah. my perception. Yeah. He did do an interview with, uh, with the New York times recently where he was saying, you know what? It's just the same as any sort of acting. So he was sort of suggesting without actually, Insisting with a sense of British modesty. Yeah, he he essentially said, you know, I think I think that performances like this should be qualified. If they don't like Caesar, that's fine. But it's a different question. Yeah, there you have it. War for the planet of the apes, guys. It's Earth, <laughs> and it's the apes. It's theirs now. We're all in trouble. But with that being said, it's time for the most least important. Thing. Welcome inside the most least important thing. It's the way we love to wrap up every show, where we bring you something that we think, although it's not getting a lot of press yet, we think it's really important. Yeah. Yeah, or maybe it is getting a or lot of press. Maybe it's getting a lot of press and it's really not important at all. The or... most least important thing. <laughs> I really don't know how we define this. We category, and actually. that's the beauty of this segment. We bring both of those just, in here. We just do whatever. There we have want. been some things that are really important that nobody's talking about, and some things that are really not important at all that tons of people are talking about. 
And they're always fun. They're always fun. So for me, I'm interpreting this as something that people are not talking about yet, but I think they will be. So I had the opportunity last uh, in the last couple of weeks to screen a movie that's actually about to drop here in the next week or two uh, called Detroit. Ooh, yeah. Which is directed by Catherine Bigelow. Yeah, huge deal. Um, who we know is a very, very competent director. I am so jealous of you right now. <laughs> Are you feeling? Are you feeling? Not only did I get to screen it, I got to meet the star. Oh my good! Which may confuse those of you who have watched the trailers and think John Boyega is the star, because I did not get to meet John Boyega. I met I met Algie Smith, who uh, ends up. But anyways, Detroit is set during the 1967 race riot in Detroit, which is heavy, heavy subject material, and you're thinking. Um, and what, but the, what's interesting about this movie is even though it's set in 1967, there you're watching this movie and the whole time it's hard to escape the feelings of how many times in the recent years have we seen this kind of stuff play out in our modern world? We think we're past this. We think this is 50 years ago, but how many times is it really just today or yesterday or tomorrow? And so, so it, it, it sets up the 67 race riots for those that aren't familiar with it. But then most of the movie involves the story of this kind of random cast of characters that find themselves in a very explosive, volatile situation that's based on a true story and was recre like they recreate it based on accounts and facts that were put out in trial and some were discarded because of that reason, the other reason, but they wanted to tell the story of what happened inside this motel on one fateful night when a bunch of people who some didn't really know each other were thrust together in the middle of this very violent situation. Yeah. And uh, man, Catherine Bigelow does such a good job with these She's types of movies. She's a great director. She's and just a great director. And it's, it's rated R there, but it's for violence and some language, but it's it could have been worse it does not gloat in the violence that's here it is all very heavy and it's not as gory as it could have been it's not an action movie at all and yet there's there's many moments of this film where it's just a very tense personal drama and i th and man you come away from it feeling very convicted as a modern citizen in the world and the nation we live in and it's a powerful movie, and I, but I'm worried that this is the type of movie that people won't go see. Yeah, no, I, and I think that those concerns are valid because it's not something that you would actually... It's not a movie you want to go see. Right, exactly. And that's, that's the difficult thing about some of these difficult movies is that they're, because they're hard to watch, you don't necessarily want to spend 12 bucks and eat popcorn while watching it. But, no. they, but yet they can be very worthwhile movies to see. Yeah. And Catherine Bigelow... She is she's a pretty brilliant film director, so um I am sure that it is worth worth the eyeballs. Yeah, you know, check out the plug in review when it yeah. comes out so you can see what's actually in it. But it's a movie that, you know, sans some F words and, you know, some blood probably could have been a PG thirteen, and yet at the same time the thematic elements are so heavy, I'm not sure it could have been a PG thirteen. Because to deal with the rawness of this type of story and that what really happened it would have been difficult to do. But I think almost what as a, like I think the real triumph of this movie is how well balanced it is. 
It is not biased towards one side or the other. It tries to – well, and it, it's, you can't say it's totally unbiased. But what it attempts to do and I think does successfully overall is show the good and the bad on both sides of the aisle. And and just look at this unblinkingly and say there were problems on both sides of this conflict, some more serious than others, yeah. um, and more long had longer lasting effects than others. But let's look at the humanity on both sides so we can come together and actually do something meaningful. Yeah. Now today, where this is still a problem. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I really respect about Bigelow. Actually, is that she has a knack for not preaching in her movies. You know, uh, Hurt Locker was a very scathing, uh, disturbing portrayal in some ways. Uh, but it was very even-handed. Yeah. And I thought the same was true of Zero Dark Thirty. I know that there was some conflict about that. But it it feels like she lets the story be told the way the story needs to be told yeah. without trying to, to angle it one way or another. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. And for those of you that come from a Christian background, there's a strong faith thread to, that runs in this movie um, for a particular character in a very interesting way. So you got to be on the lookout for that as well. So anyways... A little long-winded, but I think it's really important. It feels like a very and – I, and I try to say that without an arrogance to it. But sure. it feels like a very important movie for where we're at right now Well, I think as a culture. I would say that that is probably true. I mean like you say, those issues are as big a part of our world now as they were back then in some ways. And, and it sort of goes back to what we were talking about. History does tend to repeat itself. Yep. So, All right, Paul. All right. What's your most least important thing? My most least important thing, I'll take this on a different angle where not a lot of people are talking about it, um, but I think it's really worth talking about. A ghost story. A ghost story. Yes. it I was. actually don't know much about this. Yeah, so um, a ghost story, It's if you look at the trailers, and who knows, maybe we can post a trailer on this. Uh, this I think film. we can make that bad boy happen. Yeah, it's, it's a really odd little story. It's not a horror story. Oh, first good, because I hate horror movies. Yeah, it, it is really a story about time and of longing and of loss. And it features Casey Affleck, newly minted Oscar winner. Mm -hmm. And he spends most of his time underneath a sheet. Okay. He is truly the embodiment of a, of a Charlie Brown Halloween ghost with the sheet, eyes, the whole bit. Um, and he died in a car crash. And, and essentially, he's haunting his own house. Um, and mourning the loss of, well, mourning the loss of a lot of things. He, uh, he was really attached to this house, and he spends his time just, just in it. He watches his wife leave for a new life. He watches families come in, mm. families go, and he cannot leave this house, or he will not leave this house. Um, it's an incredibly poignant, sad, thought-provoking movie, and it really is is summed up in in some ways by how the ghost looks. When when I watched this movie, um, the ghost struck me first as kind of funny and silly, and then a couple of seconds later, I thought it's kind of eerie and creepy, and then you just start thinking. That is one of the saddest pictures I have ever seen. And, and the director, David Lowry, he is willing to just actually show you scenes, show you so shots for minutes at a time. Mm. Um, he, it's a very, 
It's a movie that rewards patience, and it's a movie that rewards thought. It's R-rated for maybe two F-words, and that's it. That's as, that's as far as the content goes. Um, but it's a deeply interesting rumination on time. And it has a little bit of a faith element in it as well. I had a chance to talk with the director, actually, and, and just published a review on my blog, um, which was fascinating. He comes from a faith background. He doesn't he doesn't adhere to that background anymore, but it can't help but influence his his filmmaking. And, right. and you can see that influence here. Interesting. We'll make sure to post a link to Paul's uh, blog or with an interview with him, right? Mm-hmm. On the blog. Yep. Uh, with the director on on our blog, fanboy know it all dot WordPress dot com Look super super slick yeah super slick url right there people fanboy know it all <laughs> dot wordpress dot com <laughs> hope you can remember it yeah bookmark it maybe <laughs> oh man thank you guys so much for sticking with us through our top five animal movies war for the planet of the apes should andy circus get an oscar nomination and hard but important films like ghost story in Detroit. As always, let us know what you think about these movies, whether you think we're out to lunch on the birds because it didn't freak you out at all. Or oh, whether you would be wrong if that's the case. <laughs> we didn't fight at all this episode, Jake. That's true. I'm I don't, kind of disappointed. I don't think we did. This Next is time, a we'll sadly a... non conflict laden yeah. episode. Next time. We suckered you guys in cause, <laughs> because you thought we were going to fight, and we didn't. We just agreed with each other the whole time, and it was nice. But come <laughs> come meet with us on our Facebook group. It's called Pop Culture with Fan People and Know-It-Alls. Catch up with us on – I can't talk, guys. I'm Porky Pig. Catch up with us on Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. We want to talk to you. But until next time, we will catch you on the flip side. See ya. See ya.